Welcome back to Underscore, a podcast of music and story. I am Marty Brueggemann. With me, as always, is my brother, Will. Today is a very exciting and special episode because we are fortunate enough to sit down and talk to composer and conductor Joe Kramer. You may know Joe from such scores as Way of the Gun, Jack Reacher, and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. We actually not too long ago played the wonderful Solomon Lane theme from the most recent Mission Impossible score. It's an incredible piece of music. We featured that on our Ostinato episode. A little bit of background on Joe Kramer. He was raised in Albany, New York, and was exposed to both the piano and music recording at an early age. He created his first film score at the age of 15 with his classmate Scott Storm and was introduced to writer-director Christopher McQuarrie as well as Brian Singer. He later attended Berklee College of Music in Boston, and while steeped in recording and popular music, he was increasingly drawn towards film scoring. He later moved to Los Angeles and in the year 2000 composed the score to Way of the Gun, the directorial debut of Christopher McQuarrie. Selections of that score became very popular temp tracks throughout Hollywood. Joe went on to create an array of scores for television and film, ultimately scoring McQuarrie's next directorial effort, 2012's Jack Reacher, starring Tom Cruise. Of the main theme Joe wrote for the character, Cruz praised it, saying it was the best piece of music written for one of his films since John Williams' Born on the Fourth of July. The Macquarie cruz kramer partnership continued with 2015's Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. In a year featuring a new Star Wars score from John Williams and a new Western score from Ennio Morricone, Kramer's score to Mission Impossible Rogue Nation landed on many best-of lists, ultimately winning the IFMCA Award for Best Original Score for an Action-Adventure Thriller Film and winning Joe the Discovery of the Year at the World Soundtrack Awards. Recently, Joe Kramer was commissioned by the Dallas Symphony Orchestra to write new music for F.W. Murnau's silent film classic, Sunrise, a song of two humans. In addition to composing, he'll once again be a featured instructor at the Hollywood Music Workshop this summer in Vienna. We are so excited to be joined by Mr. Joe Kramer here on the podcast. Hi, Joe. Hello. How are you, Marty? Doing really well. And you, Will? I'm doing great as well. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to get to talk to you about uh, some of your incredible work in films. It is my pleasure. Well, on the show, we uh, we hope to illuminate the role of composer as filmmaker and storyteller, something that I know is important to your approach to composing. And some of your early relationships with filmmakers played a significant role in your career. Can you tell us a little bit about your first forays into filmmaking? Yeah, sure. I grew up in upstate New York, and it was a pretty small town. And as a result, my high school actually had seventh grade through 12th grade, all in the same building. And when I was in seventh grade, I met a senior who was into filmmaking. His name was Scott Storm. And Scott made films on Super 8. This was the early 80s. So it was before home video really became an option. Sure. So the only, you know, the only way to make a movie was kind of on film. And it was expensive, and it took two weeks to get your footage back from the lab. Oh, right. You know, so he had a sound camera and sound projectors, and he had a little sort of almost like a chem for eight millimeter. Sure. And he cast me in a 
feature-length Super 8 film he wrote. By the time we started shooting, I was in ninth grade. And while we were shooting, I asked him what he did for music for his movies because I also had an interest in music. My father was a songwriter and amateur musician, and him and my uncle would record music together. They used reel-to-reel recorders and would ping-pong between two recorders, you know, to add overdubs to them. And it was sort of primitive but effective. And they had also dabbled in filmmaking. They made sort of a comedy silent movie in the 60s. My grandfather, their father, was a projectionist at a movie theater. So there's been this sort of music and movies uh, culture. It's almost in your blood in some sense. Yeah, a little bit, you know. None of it professional, you know, in the sort of Hollywood sense, but all of it sort of amateur and sort of for the love of it. So when I started working on this film with Scott Storm, I asked him what he did for music, and he explained how he would sort of track his movies with songs from his record collection, either Tangerine Dream albums or, you know, Peter Gabriel or Led Zeppelin, and... I said that I had this access to this equipment at home that I could record music with and maybe I could write music for his movie. And he was really excited by that prospect. And so I started writing music for the film. So at 15, I was, you know, acting in and scoring a movie. And that experience sort of cemented for me an interest in all this. And I learned about coverage and I learned about, you know, um, Scott, because Super 8 film was so expensive, Scott sort of pre-cut the movie in his head. And rather than shooting coverage in the more traditional way where you do an over-the-shoulder shot and you have the other actor do everything, we would do it a line at a time. That way you weren't burning through a lot of film shooting coverage you were never going to use. You know what I mean? Right. So I really learned how movies could be constructed really economically. And when we got a video camera a few years later, I started making short films on my own, working with another friend of mine named Mark Relier, who is now uh, Emmy-nominated sound supervisor here in L.A. And we would make these goofy, funny shorts. We made a documentary about our school play one year. And I made a short film in college starring my dad based on a story from an Alfred Hitchcock uh, anthology oh, of cool. short stories, which I then scored myself, you know, and I would do all these things to try to, you know, just to get better at all aspects of filmmaking, acting, writing, directing, editing, sound and music. And when I moved to Los Angeles after going to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, I actually managed to make a living working sort of very quietly in the background at a sound facility doing dialogue editing and then learning Foley and effects editing and all these other skills, which have helped as I've become a composer because I'm aware of what goes into the sound side of things. And I can sort of compose knowing, okay, the car is going to be louder than my score here. So the (laughs) score just needs to have energy without worrying so much about other aspects of it because it's not going to cut through. You know what I mean? Or or maybe more helpfully, not fighting the sound, but notching out a a specific range in the music where the sound can settle, if that makes sense. And Scott was the one who introduced me to Brian Singer. Brian was a roommate of his in uh, New York City at the School of Visual Arts in the mid-80s. And they would come up to Albany and shoot short films in Albany, student films. Every other student was shooting them in Central Park or Manhattan, but they were shooting them in Voorheesville, where I lived, which looked 
different than every other student's film. So, uh, you know, sure. they would do that. And that's how I met Brian. And then through Brian, I eventually met Chris McQuarrie, who was Brian's writing partner. And I met all of the actors from Brian's neighborhood that worked in his movies, like a young guy named Brandon Boyce, who ended up writing at pupil for Brian oh, and right. is now doing a movie, I think with Dean Devlin wow. and an actor from Brian's street named Ethan Hawke, who of course <laughs> went on to become Ethan Hawke. Right. You know, and through Ethan, Brian and Chris met all the guys from Dead Poets Society. Then I met all of them. And one of the guys, Dylan, became a really good friend of mine. We formed a band together. Dylan actually married me to my wife. Oh, wow. Dylan ended up being a uncredited writer on Mission 5 and has been working on The Mummy with Chris and Tom. Oh, that's so, I mean, it's all a very sort of incestuous circle. <laughs> sure. Like most sort of Hollywood stories, it goes back to the beginning you know what i mean right, right that it's it's the business is all about relationships and most of the really high profile jobs i i've gotten have been a result of a friendship i made when i was 15 you know and yeah. if i had to sort of go cold into the business now as a young man and, <laughs> and try to start out again i don't even know how i would do it well you mentioned that you attended uh the berkeley college of music uh, i'm curious because that's an institution that uh boasts some impressive faculty and alumni what are some lessons that you learned from that time either in the curriculum or from your own self-study that stick with you well i mean one of the things i learned uh, which isn't necessarily about film composing but is about sort of music and production of music if you will is that i used to go and assist the engineer in the film music department at other students recording sessions and we were talking one day about fidelity and recording quality. And he was like, look, this is the big illusion of recording, which is if you put a lousy mic in front of John Bottom, you're going to get a great drum track. <laughs> right. It just doesn't matter. You know what I mean? If you put a great mic in front of John Bonham, you're going to get a great gr drum track. But you could put the best mic in the world in front of a lousy drummer and it's just going to blow, you know? <laughs> and I still think of that, you know? If you have sure. great players you're going to get a great recording. You're going to get a great performance. And that's going to mean more than fidelity or recording quality or engineering. You know what I mean? Obviously, you want to do the best you can to make sure it's not distorted. But even right. then, like uh, one of the, I think it was Eric Tomlinson was talking in an interview about working with John Williams. And they used to right. like in the analog days to push the orchestra into what they called voo land. <laughs> the VU, sure. which they were pronouncing VU, uh, where they would kind of push it into the red. And then you'd get a, a little bit of analog distortion, but it would make things sound like they have snap and bite. Right. And that's mm -hmm. the color of that brass that almost gets into that distorted range. Yeah. You listen to the first Star Wars score, and it's not necessarily a textbook example of perfect fidelity, right. but it's a great recording. Right, it's, it's sort of not to the standards of the EMI uh, lab coat. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. You know. Well, speaking of uh, great performers and uh, great recording, uh, you conducted the score to Mission Impossible Rogue Nation at Abbey Road Studio One. Uh, yep. As a fan of John Williams and, as I know, a, a, a Beatles fan, uh, yeah. what, what can you share about that experience? It was literally a dream come true you know if i could go back in time and tell 13 year old joe hey someday you're going to be recording at abbey road in studio one i wouldn't have believed myself you sure. know what I mean? 
it was really great. And, you know, the or- orchestra was fantastic. The room is just a great sounding room. It's very live. Right. You're not going to get like a tight, dry sound there. But the sound of the room is just fantastic. And when you compare it to other rooms, you know, you can hear the difference, you know. Just listen to the main title of Star Wars from The Force Awakens and compare it to the main title from the prequels. Right. All other things being equal, the players, the engineer was the same engineer, Sean Murphy. Murphy. It's the same conductor, but the room, you can hear the difference in the room. It's amazing. Isn't it almost two seconds of of reverb or... You know, it might be. I don't know. It might, mm. so, I, for some reason, I'm thinking it was almost four. Oh, but, wow. Sure. You know, that may be sort of full decay, you know. Right, I, I, right. But that's the number that sticks in my head. I'm not sure why. And I may be confusing it with another place we recorded um, on Mission, which was in Vienna at the Music Verein, the Golden Hall. And that may be the place that had four seconds of delay. You know, when you get past 40, it all starts to blur together. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, another thing I learned at Berkeley was, you know, Berkeley had a terrific film music program. But it was interesting how few of the students in the film music program really had learned much about film. Hmm. They knew a lot about music. But being a film composer is just as much about being a filmmaker as it is about being a musician. And, you know, if I understand this right, a composer like Michael Giacchino went to film school. If I if I'm right, remembering yeah, I, correctly, I had read that also. Yeah. And JJ had actually sort of been more of a musician. Oh right. And apparently they keep joking with each other that someday Mike should direct a movie and JJ <laughs> should. Start. Hey, why not? You know? Why not? You know, they've certainly proven themselves the other way around. <laughs> sure. You know, we had a, a scene we had to score that was a montage from a documentary about Ellis Island. And it was all these sepia photographs from the 1800s of immigrants coming to America. And they generally looked like European and Eastern European immigrants, which was the subject of this documentary. Now, there was a student in my class who was from South America. And his experience coming to America was as a South American. And so he scored the scene with sort of Brazilian music because that was his experience. And that was a totally valid choice for him as a musician but it was utterly conflicting with the film do you know what i mean sure sure he was thinking like a filmmaker which is that this isn't about your experience this is about what story is the film telling and it created this sort of cognitive dissonance in the audience because it was a great piece of music and it was a totally valid composition and i don't want to pick on the guy but it bumped with the film, you know what I mean? Gotcha. It rubbed against it. It didn't make sense when you were seeing what looked like Vito Corleone, for example, coming <laughs> to America and hearing like a samba. You know what <laughs> sure, I mean? Sure, sure. You know, that's where I sort of realized like it's just as much about filmmaking as it is about musicianship or right, composing. Right. Well, I mean, that's just another reason uh, of the many reasons to love John Williams. Uh, I mean, like Marty and I, we know you have a deep uh, love for the music of John Williams. Uh, In the past, you've uh, specifically celebrated the rich counterpoint in his scores. But what are some of your thoughts about counterpoint in general in film music? Well, I mean, to be a little bit clever, I suppose I would say, I think sometimes a lot of film music doesn't even have a point, let alone a (laughs) counterpoint, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I think that the trend right now, the approach, the aesthetic is music without a melody. 
So it's sure. really hard to have counterpoint if you don't have a melody. Right. And I think scoring, you know, there's a there's an aesthetic right now of minimalism, almost what I call tonal sound design, in which right. it's not really even music. It's sort of sound design. Now, the, there's sort of orchestral equivalents of that, like having all the strings gliss up. That's sort of more of a sound design thing than a music thing, really. You know what I mean? Or like an aleatoric sort of high bridge tremolo screechy thing. You know what I mean? Um, So even though that's being achieved with musical Musical effects, it's an effect. And I think that even some of those effects, it's like they're sort of tired and, and played out. And we all use them when we have to, usually because a director has put it in a temp and loves it. Right. But the current aesthetic is to solve the challenges that a scene presents a composer using production tricks and sound design rather than a melody. Right. And what I really admire about John Williams is that it's almost always a musical solution. Oh, that's so true. Rather than a textural production sound design type solution. Sure. So like the sequence in The Revenant where Leonardo DiCaprio is galloping across the snow plain and then he falls off a cliff and lands in a tree. I mean, to the best of my memory, that entire sequence is scored with one note, just a sustained low note. And, you know, it's an effective choice, but it's not exciting to me as a composer. Sure. You know what I mean? It's not particularly, as you said, even a a musical solution to supporting that scene. Right. Certainly in a score like a John Williams score, if he took that approach for a sequence, it would probably be really almost even more effective because of the contrast to what would be going on around it in other scenes of the film. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's not a valid choice, but this whole sort of minimalist movement, I believe that films are capable of sustaining so much more than they're being asked to sustain in the current sort of environment. And I recognize that, To a certain degree, maybe I'm marginalizing myself when I say things like that, that there are directors who love that minimal approach and think one of the big problems with films has been too much music. And, you know, I can't argue that that's not possibly true. I mean, not necessarily even in the type of music, but the amount of music. I mean, Patton was three and a half hours long and it had about 28 minutes of score. So that's true. There's this weird thing where it's almost like, well, if we have to have a lot of music in terms of the number of minutes of music, let's make it as minimal as possible so that right, it's sure. not getting in the way. Well, it's interesting. You described it as uh, solving a problem, which I think is funny because historically that's almost always how music has been treated in film. We first got music in film because people thought it was uncanny to watch these moving images and you needed some music to make it like digestible and it's it's interesting to hear you say now with all of our technology and our context today a lot of composers still approach the music in a similar mindset of you're almost just solving a problem rather than creating a piece of art i don't want to be disingenuous when i say solving a problem because i don't mean that you're solving a problem like it's something is broken that you have to fix but as a composer you're presented with a film and a film is a series of shots that have no relation to one another and sound that has no relation to that, except by coincidence, you know, obviously by design in truth. But as Peter Bogdanovich called it, we're taking pieces of time and stitching them together and we're creating an illusion of what happened rather than what really happened, which is we got a bunch of people to pretend to be other people 
and filmed it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And there's all sorts of things that get in the way of making that illusion seamless. Sound, lighting, costume, continuity. These are all obstacles to the perfection of a film. So maybe rather than saying solving a problem, it's, you know, addressing those obstacles and how am I going to get around those obstacles in pursuit of art or perfection or whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah, one way to do that is to load up stylus in your computer and load <laughs> up, find the exit and push middle C <laughs> and now you've got your action cue. Right. And drum you know, loop and everything. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you can listen to big studio films and that's all they've done. You know what I mean? Right. And they've got action strings and find the exit and that's their cue. <laughs> You know, I mean, I think that's a good point. I don't know whether these views would really ostracize you or or anyone else in the industry, because the reality is, is if they're not advocated for, they will probably fade away. Minimalism, just by its nature, requires less energy, arguably. Maybe that's an extreme view. But I think it does take a certain amount of additional advocacy for the amount of, say, depth or contrapuntal writing and animation and like a cue from hook or something. Right. I was listening to, I had my iPod on shuffle and Jim's new life came up from empire of the sun. And I was just struck again by just the depth of the writing. And it's not just, okay. So there's like what you might call the groove, which is the French horns doing this sort of right. And that's sort of, that's sort of the, if you will, like the, the loop. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And then on right. top of that, you've got this. Right. Beautiful singing. Right. And even that tune is sort of antiphonal because the, the trumpets sort of do the first phrase. Right. The, I think the winds maybe do the response. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah that sounds but right. then underneath all that, he's got the, the cellos going like, you know, and he's got these layers and this bubbling and this activity. And it's just you compare that to other composers today who are being called the next John Williams. And they're not doing that. <laughs> right. So true. They're doing the groove and sort of the tune. And they're not even necessarily doing the antiphonal tune. And they're not harmonizing the tune. It's all unisons. You know what I mean? And it's just yeah. a depth to the writing that's just missing. And directors will be quick to say, oh, it's just some crappy John Williams thing. You know what I mean? And they'll blow all that off without any regard for the craftsmanship behind it because they went and saw The Revenant and one note was the score. You know what I mean? Right. Look, I was inspired by minimalism for parts of Mission Impossible. But one of my teachers at Berkeley always spoke in terms of threes. You know, you want to always have at least three things going on. Your sort of your groove. He didn't call it this, but, you know, your groove, your melody, and then your counterpoint. Hmm. These are sort of fundamentals of composition, in my opinion. Almost like rhythm, melody, and harmony. Yeah. I mean, in a rock song, you wouldn't just have like a bass and that's the whole song. Right. <laughs> right. Listen, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to accept responsibility for the consequences of what I say, which is that if you're... Sure the director of The Revenant, you don't want John Williams, I'm not your guy. Right. I, I can't be mad at him for not hiring me to score his movie if he hears me on a podcast saying, I don't want to do that. <laughs> right. So I get that. But the truth is, you know, if he hired me and that's what he wanted me to do, I would do it. I would talk with him and we would figure out a way that I could do that. 
but my hope would be, I mean, the truth is most of, like Chris McQuarrie doesn't want that. You know what I mean? Right. He didn't want that for Reacher. He didn't want that for Mission Impossible. Scott Storm, who I still work with, I did it. I just did an animated film for him and he didn't want that, you know? Right. I think it takes a generosity of spirit and like a collaborative spirit for a director to want to allow the music to play some role in the storytelling outside of just the smallest possible element we can get away with without it like being overbearing. Right. And part of the trick is to you don't have to be overbearing. You know what I mean? Now, like there's a sequence right. in I thought Catch Me If You Can was a really innovative main title. It's yeah. a really innovative score. And then there was a sequence where Tom Hanks is going through an apartment and up a set of stairs. And you think he's going to catch Leonardo and, and he doesn't. Leonardo gets away. And yeah. I did think that that sequence bumped against the aesthetic of the rest of the film. And I don't want to pick on Spielberg or Williams. They know more than I'll ever know. So, you know, this is just my opinion. But that was a sequence where I thought, ah, that's the kind of sequence where somebody who's like, oh, it's just John Williams being overbearing. They could look at that sequence and maybe make have a, a relevant point. Sure. Or even a couple of the cues cut out of Empire Strikes Back. I think Irvin Kirshner, for the most part, had, had pretty keen taste on when to pull some of those out. I would argue, though, that the music that was, if you sync the music back up to the film, it works. It's right. not a question right. of it being overbearing as much as it. Ha it's a question of sort of a tonal a tonal question about how real they wanted the movie to feel right. and i think what's interesting about it's funny this is a total aside but what's interesting about <laughs> empire strikes back and why i think it's so many people's favorite star wars film is because out of all the films it's the only one that makes no well besides the first one it's the only one that makes no sort of fan service references to earlier films it's the only one that was like, we don't care about the last film in terms of we're not going to we're not trying to give you Star Wars again. We're moving the story forward and we're telling a whole new story and we're not worried about rekindling that feeling you had with Star Wars. You know what I mean? Right. Whereas like even as early as Return of the Jedi, it was like the I love you, I know joke came back and I've got a bad feeling about this started to be something that was in every movie. And musically we had the sarlacc pit was just a rehash of the tie fighter sequence and then when you got into the prequels there were all these things where it was like nods and winks to the earlier films you know up through force awakens where you know we've got little mouse robots that are making the same noise you know and right. finding the remote and when he turns you know that the the lightsaber practice ball you know and then when they turn on the chess set it's finishing the game from episode four. These are all things like self-referential winks and nods that Empire didn't make at all. And I think taking the music out only reinforces that. So when you put the score back in, for example, when Han Solo rides in on the Tauntaun and takes his hood off and sort of, you know, shakes the snow from his hair, the theme, the music does like a little sort of, ah, here's Han Solo. And then when Chewbacca shows up, there's a, and there are all these sort of rep musical references saying up oh, there's han there's right. leia there's you know and when you take the score out of those scenes you don't have that and it feels less like the gang we're getting the gang back together and feels more like we're just watching what's happening right yeah it's a lot more sort of sober and there's more realism 
hopping around a little bit, I know actually that one of your most outspoken fans has been one of the stars of a couple of your films, Mr. Tom Cruise, <laughs> particularly for your theme to Jack Reacher. Yes. Um, which I remember him favorably comparing to John Williams' score, Born on the Fourth of July. It's truly, I think, one of the great character themes. Uh, what can you share about crafting the theme, if you have a memory of Yeah, I mean, down? it's funny because, you know, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a, the most tuneful of themes. You're not necessarily going to walk around singing the tune. But I, I did feel like it captured the character, and it did kind of bridge that. I, what I tried to do was make a, a theme that felt motivic and yet didn't necessarily overly romanticized the character, you know, and, sure. and if, if the theme was more of a long line melody, it felt like it was getting into a more romantic in the sort of 1800 sense of the word. Uh, sure. Right, right. So essentially what I did was I analyzed the character as a filmmaker and I said, okay, he's an ex military cop. So military, that means brass, brass, military. That means maybe something like taps, you know, Ba, 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 ba. Okay, so taps. But a trumpet feels like he's still in the military. Whereas maybe if I backed it off and picked a, som a more somber tone, like a French horn, that might feel more like it's an echo of the past. You know what I mean? So now it's a French horn going. Okay, but it's ma that's sort of major and and positive and this is a darker film so how can i color that so that it's more ambiguous about its tonal center sure and one way was to make this pivot between c major and a flat major that pivot even though it was two major chords introduced this e flat relative to c not to get too musically right. nerdy creates a minor feeling so even though it was two major chords it felt it's existing in both c major and c minor at the same time kind of it kind of feels like that, yeah. And then putting this this melody over it, which was a French horn in the open fifths, open fifths work against major and minor really well. So right. as a result, I was able to sort of put together this music that was ambiguously major and minor. So it was minor enough to feel dark, yet major enough to feel like it was for a hero and not a villain. You can always sort of reduce things down to their simplest level. And, you know, yeah, in the movie, Jack Reacher says, you think I'm a hero? I am not a hero. But you know what? <laughs> At the simplest level, he's the hero of the film. Right. His name's on the poster. He's yeah. the Lone Ranger. He rides into town, he solves the problem, and he rides off into the sunset. You know what I mean? Right, right. And what's interesting about Reacher, kind of like Indiana Jones movies or Back to the Future, it's not really about him. And it's not really about developing him as a character. He, Reacher, is the same guy at the end of the movie that he is at the beginning. Hmm. Oh, that's true. I suppose the one way he's different is that he's learned maybe, you know, he was wrong to just assume that Jack Barr or James Barr was 
guilty. Right. And that in investigating the case, he, maybe he learned, oh, maybe I shouldn't just jump to conclusions. That's about it, though, for character development. But what I love about that theme, I mean, you talked about minimalism and some of the downfalls there. But in the sheer economy of notes, it's really a quite a direct theme. And there's also just like a nice harmonic moment that happens where you have that G rubbing against the A flat. And it implies this major seventh harmony, even though the melody itself is very basic. It almost sounds like something you could play on a bugle. The harmonies that are implied are so much more luscious and I guess you could say romantic than that. Well, thank you. I mean, it's interesting because it's in the end credits that I really push that. I have like an F minor chord over a G bass, which is a very sort of 1940s, 1950s. Like a jazz kind of chord. Musical gesture. Jerome Kern or something. Well, to be totally honest, I was inspired by the end of Attack of the Clones, uh, as they get married, he de- oh, Williams right. does a very similar thing where it feels sort of like a four minor over five, and yeah. it's got this horn going dun 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 dun. You know, and it's got this, but it really pushes into that E flat major really nicely, and I always liked that. I thought it was an effective way to get from sort of the minor feeling back into the major. I actually really lobbied as hard as I could to have that be the chord that you hear as Jack Reacher gets up on the bus to go beat up, you know, to go straighten out the guy in the back of the bus for hitting his girlfriend. You know what I mean? But, you know, Macquarie and I went back and forth. And at the end of the day, you know, it's his movie and I backed down and we we changed it. So it's still the four minor chord, but it's over a four in the bass rather than the five. And Chris's argument, which I, in the end I had to concede, was we had spent the whole movie never giving in to that impulse to make him a hero. And Chris was like, I didn't make this whole movie so that in the last four seconds we could sell out like that. Now, I didn't <laughs> think that was selling out. I right. thought that was the character finally reaching its full potential. But yeah. – I understood Chris's point of view, and I said that's a totally valid argument, and I'm not here to ruin your movie. I'm here to help you make the movie you want to make, and I was happy to do it. And when I put it in the end credits, he was like, yeah, fine, great. It's the credits. I don't care. <laughs> so It's interesting. I feel like that brings up sort of the issue of musical exposure or musical palette and maybe adds another challenge to those of us that might want to incorporate some of that more lush extended harmony. If it sounds too foreign to a moviegoer or filmmaker, I suppose that could be kind of a tough sell. Well, it's interesting. I worked, I was a composer in residence in at Columbia college in Chicago last year. And I worked really closely with the head of the department there, the head of the, the, the film music program there named Kubele Uner. And Kubi is a very much an electronic textural composer he's really into like uh the guy who did the arrival and sicario oh sure uh johansson and he's really into morricone even who i think as far as orchestrational composing is kind of minimalist really sure and i was doing my little nerd presentation on star wars music and kubi just kept remarking how old-fashioned it seemed and it was funny because to me it doesn't seem old-fashioned at all yeah yeah you know what i mean to me it's like you know this is I love this stuff, but I don't think the Beatles sound old fashioned. You know what I mean? Yeah, same here. There's a community of filmmakers who that is just not their vocabulary anymore. I think some of that is a product of the explosion of independent film. Essentially, in the process of democratizing filmmaking 
and getting it out of the sort of exclusive hands of studios and into more, quote, ordinary people who want to make films. Those people, let me put it like this. When Spielberg made his films on Super 8 as a young kid, they were little kids running around Arizona pretending it was Iwo Jima. And they were wearing like blue jeans and a green T-shirt and a plastic army hat that they got at the Woolworths down, you know, in town. (laughs) Right. And then he would did this really clever trick where they'd take it like a board and put a pile of dirt on it and then put the board on a rock like a teeter-totter. And then you'd push the other end of the board down and the dirt would fly in the air and look like they'd jumped on a landmine. <laughs> these were all these little tricks he was doing and they were silent films. And then he would use the soundtrack to Victory at Sea or the Green Berets or whatever as this, quote, score for the film. And they were these big orchestral scores. And he totally got away with it. Part of the reason was the suspension of disbelief that you had to embrace in order to accept that these kids were soldiers in the South Pacific was so immense that putting this music on only helped that. You know what I mean? Right. right. And the other thing was that there was no chance that these films were ever going to be released. These were films that were made for the love of filmmaking and to learn how to be a filmmaker. And so it didn't really matter if they had copywritten music in them. Compare that to Steven Soderbergh, who is like, I want to make a film. Well, the independent scene is such that the film could actually be released. It becomes a film starring a bunch of actors that I know, that I have access to, and maybe not so much with Sex Lies, but then you get into like Ed Burns and Robert Rodriguez and Brian Singer's first movies and the independent scene now. And what you've got is you're a filmmaker making a film, telling a story that I can shoot in my house because I can't afford sets. And the composer, the music, is usually like a musician that I know. And a lot of times they're a musician in a band, especially in the 80s and 90s when being a sort of independent film composer wasn't really a thing. Right. As a result, those musicians, they haven't really spent a life studying the vocabulary of film music that, say, Williams studied or Goldsmith or Elmer Bernstein or David Shire or even Elfman. You know what I mean? Elfman and his scoring really wanted to be like sort of Bernard Herrmann and Goldsmith. Right. He wasn't trying to do Oingo Boingo music as film right. music. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so what we ended up with, I think Zimmer kind of started it. Zimmer was like, why? Why does that have to be the vocabulary of film music? Why can't it be three chord rock? Right. We have composers now where that's really their language. It's a development of rock vocabulary rather but with than no melody. jazz and orchestral <laughs> symphonic vocabulary. Right. Essentially what they do is they make instrumental songs. The score to Rain Man could very easily have been almost like an Anya album. Uh, Peter Gabriel's score to Last Temptation of Christ is mm-hmm. almost his album Us without vocals. And this whole notion, I mean, so what Trent Reznor's doing is essentially Nine Inch Nails music without the vocal track. I don't say that's bad. It's just an entirely different approach than the Corn Gold, Bernard Herman, John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Alan Silvestri, Don Davis, James Newton Howard approach. Well, you almost wonder if those two lineages couldn't communicate more than they do. It's not like one has to sit out entirely and one should be the dominant force. It's like... If you could have the more modern style of rock-influenced film composition with an understanding and appreciation of the Korngold and Max Steiner and Bernard Herrmann film music tradition, I wonder what that would look like. Well, I sort of tried to do that with The Way of the Gun. Oh, sure. You know, there's acoustic guitar in it, and I sort of have the acoustic guitar almost functioning like a harp in spots, and then I have the harp functioning like an acoustic guitar. 
the timpani I always sort of envisioned as propelling the music like John Bonham. Sure. Wanted to conceive it as John Bonham on the timpani. Now, the actual realization of that was somewhat less because of factors, including budget and the room we recorded in. I didn't quite get what I was going for in that regard, although, you know, whether you mean to or not, the final result ends up defining itself. The Beatles did not set out necessarily to create the Beatles sound. The sound of the Beatles is what they got by playing the instruments they played in the studio they played. As opposed to like Lenny Kravitz, who's like trying to chase that sound or ELO. You know, films of the 70s looked the way they look because of the realities of what Kodak was providing in terms of film stock and the way they were lighting these films and choices they were making. Aspects of them were definitely chased. I mean, Coppola definitely chased the very low light look of the Godfather movie. And there was a definite concern that the film was too dark, so dark that people wouldn't literally be able to see the actors on the screen once you made your inner positives and then your prints and then your prints of those. By the time it got to the theater, the way theater projectionists dim the bulbs to save to get more hours out of them. There was legitimate concern on Paramount's part that you literally would not be able to see the image on the screen. But. You look at the new shots of the stormtroopers in the desert in the special edition of Star Wars, and that is still film. It's 35 millimeter. And they were doing what they could to emulate what Gilbert Taylor had done in 76 in Tunisia. Right. But it doesn't match. You know what I mean? The the light does not sort of flare off the helmets in the new shots of the stormtroopers the way it does in the 70s shots. And some of that is just that stock wasn't available anymore. And those cameras are different, you know. They weren't chasing that look in the 70s the way they were chasing it in the 90s and then still not matching it. This is a long way to go, but I hope the point makes sense. (laughs) No, no, it makes a lot of sense. In one sense, I applaud John Williams for the fact that, look, the room at Sony was never going to sound like Abbey Road. Right. So you could either try to EQ it and add a ton of reverb to make it sound like that or just say no. This is the room. This is what it sounds like. And that's always been William's approach, which is why Superman doesn't sound like Star Wars, which doesn't sound like E.T., which doesn't sound like Empire of the Sun, which doesn't sound like Hook. It's always been like, this is what it sounds like in the room, and this is what we're doing. And yeah, definitely a composer that's sort of focused from the inside out and the kind of core musical idea and clearly seems to care about the fidelity of the recording but yeah certainly and to me it's all about the performance i don't even think like it's not that he actively doesn't care but i think his top priority is the composition and the performance and everything else is secondary to that right i just wanted to say one more thing about rock music which is that you know john williams incorporates rock elements into his scores so like in attack of the clones he has an electric guitar playing like a almost like a joe satry right through that like chase sequence um in the beginning I would say that within the film music world, the two sort of sides of the coin are the Hans approach and the John Williams approach. And definitely the Williams approach is there just aren't as many people who either go there or are disciplined enough to pursue it or capable or whatever. I don't know. You know what I mean? And the Zimmer approach is definitely, I think, a little easier to attain because it's based in rock music, which so many more musicians have experience in. Right, right. 
So, Joe, I know that this summer, once again, you will be lecturing and teaching at the uh, Hollywood Music Workshop in Vienna. What can uh, students of that workshop expect from your course this year? Well, the composition course that I'll be teaching will be, again, centering on, you know, from concept to composition and about a lot of what we've spoken about here. The course in Vienna or in Baden is not really designed to teach you how to write a melody. Sure. Or to teach you how to harmonize against a tune or to teach you the concepts of counterpoint. It's a class about applying what you know as a film composer to a film, much the way I did with, say, Reacher, looking at the character and then using that to create the musical identity for the film. There's a short film that I worked on that I show. There's Reacher. There's Mission Impossible. There'll be a new film I'm bringing this year. It's actually a very old film called Sunrise from 1927, but I wrote a new score for it, and I'll show some of my process with that. Again, I start with the film, and I start with the story, and I try to create a score that tells that story. The other exciting thing we're doing this year that we haven't done before centers around the recording session, and we've taken the recording session from being just sort of an adjunct to the composition course and made it its own thing. Uh, Uh, I was really struck last year by how much there is to running a recording session successfully that no one's ever really taught. They didn't really even teach it at Berkeley. They kind of just said, okay, go and record it and get it done (laughs) in an hour. Sure. And I learned a lot watching the students last year. I, I also realized a lot about what I'd learned running the sessions for Reacher and Way of the Gun and Mission Impossible. And we've developed a whole course that Conrad and I are going to teach this year that will culminate in the recording session. But it'll involve organizing your time, how to speak to the orchestra. It'll it'll involve concepts in, in conducting, how to relate to the booth, dealing with the click, dealing with punching in, pickups, all this stuff. And it was all stuff that I guess we all kind of took for granted. And I realized last year, now we should we should take some time and actually teach this stuff. That sounds like a wonderful idea and certainly a great facility there. And if Dimitri's on hand to concert master, there's some more great wisdom there. Yeah, he will. So, you know, that's the new course we're doing this year in addition to the composition course. The other thing we found was that we there wasn't necessarily a one-to-one crossover between the students who wanted to do the composing course and the students who wanted to record a piece. So we thought, well, we'll make them different courses and both courses will be better for that. That makes a lot of sense. So as we uh, sort of close here, where can our listeners follow the uh, continuing adventures of Joe Kramer? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, both just as Joe Kramer, you know, at Joe Kramer or Joe Kramer on Facebook. And I have a website. Nobody really seems to go to websites anymore. So it's a little behind the times right now. But, you know, I've got some new projects I'm working on, which I can't really talk about yet. But, you know, as those come closer to release you'll hear more about those and you know you can find my music on itunes amazon youtube spotify pandora and even this show we just recently featured the uh, wonderful solomon lane theme oh so, thanks yeah love including that now uh I'm curious the the score that you composed that you were was it the dallas symphony that had commissioned your score to yes yeah, the dallas chamber symphony wonderful is that something that that might ever see a, a commercial recording? Or? I'm hoping so. I'm putting together a plan for that. We're hoping to perform it to picture in Baden oh, as part of the wonderful. week and you know, as part of the Hollywood Music Workshop, as part of the sort of community interactive part. Sure. We did the Star Wars night last year with Conrad and I. This year we want to do Sunrise. And I'm hopeful that the group that performs that 
I'll be able to arrange to record it with them at Synchron and then put that out on CD or, or digital download. Oh, that'd be terrific. Sometime after that. So that's the plan right now. We'll see if it, if, if that happens or not, but that's the plan. I'll keep you posted. Oh, that, that would be wonderful. Well, we really can't thank you enough for your time talking about the great tradition of film music, your exciting career, and really the role of a film composer as part of the filmmaking team, that this is really a not only a collaborative art form, but an art form that relies on kind of specific knowledge of how movies are are made and i think the great composers are also individuals who love movies themselves well thank you for having me it's been a real pleasure it's good to talk to you again oh absolutely well you take care joe and um, you too. we'll be in touch okay all right take care thanks guys thanks. bye all right Thanks so much for listening to today's episode, and we can't thank Joe enough for joining us to talk about film music. It's been an absolute pleasure, and really as composers and avid fans of cinema and film music, Marty and I have just been so enamored by Joe Kramer's music. You know, we mentioned in the interview, but one of my favorite film-going memories in the last few years was seeing Rogue Nation with you. And I just remember both of us not really having any feelings one way or another about what the film was going to be like or any expectations about the score and just being floored by the rich detail of this music. I mean... I- Really, I, from moment one. I couldn't yeah. believe it. I'm like, who, who is this composer? He, he must be some hidden Hollywood legend from the bygone days. It's almost like what Steven Spielberg experienced <laughs> when he first heard the a John Reavers. Williams yeah. score. Yeah, <laughs> the Cowboys. Oh, that's wonderful. And we very much look forward to hopefully hearing Joe's uh, recently composed score to Sunrise, which is such a beautiful, beautiful film. Once again, we invite you to send any questions, concerns, or thoughts about the show to our email address, the underscore show at gmail.com. You can find every single episode of this podcast, as well as some of our neat supplemental materials at our website, underscore podcast.com. And you can follow us on all matters of social media, Facebook, YouTube. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review at iTunes. That helps new listeners discover the podcast. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Kramer, K-R-A-E-M-E-R. And as always, you can follow us at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. Until next time, everybody. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care. Take care.